0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pause once again to acknowledge that all good things come from You, that You are a God who is kind and good to Your people. You are holy and set apart from sin, and You are like no other. No one compares to You. We thank You for the fact that as we approach Your presence spiritually, that we dare not do it haphazardly, flippantly, I pray that even now you might impress that upon our hearts that you are holy, holy, holy. That the whole earth is full of your glory. Father, help us to be people who are, Lord, um, in awe of you. Who marvel at your greatness. And Lord, even now as we open up your word, your self-revelation, you've revealed yourself through your word. I pray that we might approach your word with reverence and respect and honor. I pray that we might be Hearers who are not self-deceived, but who are intent on applying these truths to our hearts and lives. Father, do this amongst your people. Work by your Spirit. Lord, my words, um, your servant's words will go forth in vain if it is not for your Spirit who works mightily in each of our hearts. Work powerfully, Lord. Open our eyes that we might see beautiful things from your Word. Challenge us. Encourage us. Exhort us. Draw us to our knees in worship of you and in awe of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. Um, We're going to be focusing this morning on verses 49 and 50 of Mark chapter 9. But I want to read the whole section, this whole uh, unit of thought, verses 38 through 50, just for some context for us. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. This is the Word of God. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ... Truly, I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell and to the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then our text. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And the Lord blessed the reading of his precious word. Well, if you recall, we've been looking at this very rich passage for a a couple of Sundays. And today we have the privilege of looking at verses 49 and 50, as I mentioned, and admittedly, These are, just so you know, two of the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament to interpret, in particular verse 49, but also, as we're going to see, two of the most impactful verses that have so much pertinence for our lives as Christians. Now, as we get back in this amazing passage, we need to remember the context that is so important. The disciples and our Lord are in Capernaum, according to verse 33, and most likely, most believe that they're in the home of Peter. It seems that, that Peter's home in Capernaum really became Jesus' ministry headquarters, where they would constantly come and, and gather together Jesus and his disciples for private time in Peter's home of teaching and ministry and relationship. And so it's here in Peter's home that Jesus then teaches his disciples a number of lessons. And what prompted this mini-workshop in Peter's home By our Lord was that they were discussing amongst themselves as disciples were which among them was the greatest if you remember back in verse 34. And so Jesus uses that as an opportunity through the object lesson of a little child of a little toddler to teach his disciples about humility and humble servanthood. In fact, you might say that humility is the key theme throughout this particular passage. For example, in verses 38 through 41, we saw that Jesus taught them about love. But this is a love that is motivated by a heart of humility. For only humble people put others first, serving others and loving others. And then we saw in verses 41 through 48 that the Lord taught them about holiness And that, of course, flows from a heart of humility as well. Holiness does. Because only humble, broken people see their sin in the light of the holiness of God. And thus, by God's grace, want to be holy and want to be like Jesus. All of the kingdom principles we've been seeing, in other words, service and love and holiness are rooted in, flow from, if you will, are motivated by a heart of humility. Humility is the way of of the kingdom because this was and is the way of the king our lord jesus was the ultimate model and example of humility wasn't he our precious lord according to philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 9 Christ, our Lord, came down to earth and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He showed the ultimate act of condescension by suffering on a cross as the great sin bearer who paid for our sins. He humbled himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, the Lord Jesus himself described himself as gentle and humble of heart. And isn't it true, as we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark for a couple of years, uh, isn't it true that throughout his ministry, Jesus humbly served people? So that the theme verse in Mark ten forty five says, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in Matthew 21, we see that a week before his death, the king entered Jerusalem, not in great pomp, but humbly seated, on a donkey christ is the ultimate example of humility and for those who are kingdom citizens beloved who have turned to christ who have put our faith in jesus christ so that he is our king and our savior we are to live by the kingdom principle of humility we are to be humble people from which love and holiness the other kingdom principles we've been learning flow from from a heart of humility now today we want to consider two more kingdom principles that we are to live by if we are to bring God glory as his kingdom citizens. We've already seen that Jesus taught his disciples to live by the kingdom principle of, of love in verses 38 through 41. And we, and we also saw that Jesus taught his disciples on the kingdom principle of holiness in verses 42 to 48. But thirdly, if you're taking notes, Jesus teaches his disciples to live by the kingdom principle of of sacrifice the kingdom principle of sacrifice in verse 49 it should go without saying if you understand in our, and live in our culture that concepts like suffering sacrifice selflessness these are not terms and concepts that are very popular in our culture all you have to do is look around in our society right now in the midst of this pandemic and see how people are vocalizing and verbalizing their displeasure at the restrictions that have been placed upon us. Now, it's not that we are going to agree with everything that's taking place and that we're not going to have opinions about certain things. But isn't it amazing to, to see how much, how much sinful vocalizing there is about the restrictions that have been placed? It's almost like we live in such a self-entitled culture where we don't want to sacrifice for other people. Or even in the best case scenario where if you are having to say no to yourself for certain things, certain things that you, privileges that you might have had before for the sake of others, we don't want to do that. But Jesus spoke so much about suffering, selflessness, and sacrifice, In fact, he told his followers, essentially, if you want to follow me, the way of the king, my way, and the pathway to future glory is that you would lay down your life for me and for others. It's the pathway of sacrifice. And I think that that this issue of sacrifice is what our Lord gets at here in verse 49. Look what he says there in verse 49. Our Lord says, for everyone will be salted with fire. For everyone will be salted with fire. As I said, this is one of the toughest verses in the New Testament to interpret. And what makes it so tough is that some initial questions arise about verse 49. First, who is the everyone referring to here? Who is the everyone? Is this referring to everyone in the sense of all non-believers? Or is this referring to everyone in the sense of all believers, all Christians, all followers of Christ? Or is this everyone referring to both non-believers and believers? Which one is it? Next, what is the salt here? Everyone will be salted with fire. What is our Lord referring to here? And finally, what is the fire referring to? For everyone will be salted with fire. Now to begin to answer those questions, we need to remember the context and keep the context in mind, right? First, second, and third rules of interpretation, for those of you who are out there, are what? Context, context, context. Those are the first three rules of interpretation. And I think we need to keep the context in mind here, and specifically, the audience that Jesus has been addressing. Who has he been addressing? He's been addressing, in the context of Peter's home, his disciples. His followers, believers, minus Judas Iscariot, of course, who we know is a traitor and was never truly a follower of Jesus. So his audience that he's been calling to humility and love and holiness are his followers, believers, the disciples themselves. And then building on this issue of the audience being the disciples, it's important to note that little word. If you notice in verse 49 with me, the little word that begins verse 49, for 4 see that little word there that word 4 connects us to the previous passage specifically to verses 43 to 49 and that little word 4 expands on the caution it expands on the on the warning given to his disciples about the importance of taking your sin seriously and acting against your sin by the grace of God in a definitive manner so take note the audience are the disciples and the four there expands upon his, his caution that he has just given in verses 43 to 49. And so I believe that everyone here is not referring to unbelievers, those who are not Christians, or that it's a reference to both believers and non-believers. I believe that everyone there is referring to believers, to followers of Christ. And I think this makes more sense when you look with me at verse 50. We're going to look at that in a few minutes more in detail. But he says there in verse 50, salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Then he says, notice, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Who are the yourselves there? And who are the be at peace with one another? Clearly in verse 50, he's referring to his disciples to believers, to followers, by application for us. Now what does it mean then that every believer will be salted with fire? What does Jesus mean by this? What does this reference to salt mean here? Well, most interpreters believe that the answer is found in the Old Testament sacrifices. And those appear for us in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. You can read about Five sacrifices there that the Old Testament Israelites were to practice regularly. Four of those five sacrifices were sin offerings. Take note. But for our particular purposes, there was one offering that was not a sin offering, but a grain offering. A grain offering. And pay attention to this the grain offering was a sacrifice of dedication, of devotion of consecration of oneself to God, of setting oneself apart for the purposes of God. And what would happen with the grain offering is that when your harvest would come in as an Israelite, you would take of the first fruits of your harvested grain and offer those first fruits to God. By offering those this grain offering, then you were consecrating, setting aside the very best for Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, this is very important. With regards to this grain offering, we read in Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 13, the following words. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt. So you were to literally cover, saturate, drench this offering with salt. And what is salt for us? Salt is a preservative, isn't it? It's like meat, for example, is preserved by being packed with salt. It's a preservative. And so what's the significance of the offering being covered with salt? Well, Leviticus 2.13 also says that you are to season your grain offering with salt. Here it is. So that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Take note, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall now be lacking from your grain offering. Here's the significance. To put salt on your sacrifice symbolized permanence. It symbolized God's enduring covenant, his enduring faithfulness to his covenant promises. And so in worshipful response to, to God's enduring covenant, the worshiper... Was saying to, with with his sacrifice, Yahweh, in light of your enduring faithfulness, I'm offering this as the first fruits, but ultimately, Yahweh was always after the worshiper himself, right? Always after the worshiper, not just the external sacrifice. So in a sense, the worshiper was saying, I'm offering myself as a sacrifice to you alone. I'm completely devoted, completely dedicated to you alone. Because ultimately, God wasn't concerned just about the physical offering itself. He was most concerned about you as the worshiper, your heart being for him. And so I believe that what's being pictured here is the believer the follower of Christ, the Christian, as that sacrifice. But you say, what about the fire? What about the fire there in verse 49? What's this thing about it? everyone, every believer, will be salted with fire? What is that all about? Well, the fire accompanied the sacrifices, didn't they? The sacrifices were burned on the altar by fire. And I believe, as most conservative interpreters believe here, that the, uh, to be salted with fire refers to the, to the purging, to the purifying of Christians through the fires of trial and suffering. Sinclair Ferguson is so helpful here. Listen to what he says. Jesus seems to be saying here that as we offer our lives to Christ, we too will become like those sacrifices, but we will be seasoned with fire, not salt. What is the fire? These are the trials which will purge away the dross of our Christian lives so that only those who have taken Christ's summons seriously will remain standing. I agree. I agree. And so do a number of others. As Christians, as believers, as followers of Christ, we are pictured here as a sacrifice and as such we are continually being purged purified of our sin by the fires of trial and suffering by persecution even if necessary that's what i think this means here i think there's biblical precedent for this for example if you turn with me to first peter chapter 4 peter writes there who oh by the way he's sitting there listening to jesus in his own home in first peter chapter 4 in verse 12 the apostle peter writes To Christians, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And what's this fiery ordeal consist of? But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. So this fiery ordeal consists of their suffering in the form of persecution. Persecution. Some of them were being, were being taken, their possessions were being taken from them. Some of them were being killed, mistreated, ridiculed for their faith. But then he says, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Peter says, don't let it shock you believers First, remember in the face of persecution and the fiery trials that God has brought to your life that Christ has gone before you. He has laid down His life. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He has set the example. And you as His followers will suffer and be sacrificed as well. But rejoice. What's He doing? He's preparing you for future glory. You see, the fires of adversity are one of the primary ways that God purifies and purges His people, that we might be fully devoted to Him, that we might, brothers and sisters, anticipate the coming glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We long for that to come. This particular view, by the way, also makes sense if you consider the fact that Jesus has been talking about his suffering, about his coming sacrifice for sins on the cross. He talked about it in Mark 8.31. We saw that again in Mark 9.31. And later on, we're going to see again that he he keeps talking about his future sacrifice on the cross in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. And they, as his followers, he's been telling them, will also suffer as well. He said this in chapter 8. Verses 34 to 38. And so note, suffering and and this language of sacrifice has been an emphasis in the previous context. And the question that we should ask right now is this, what does this mean for us as Christians? What does this mean for us as Christians? And I can think of no better way to put this than the way that Romans chapter 12 verse 1 puts it. Our brother Alex read this earlier. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to Christians. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. The Apostle says, Christians, believers, those of you who have experienced the the mercy of God, the tender pities of God, And the person and the work of Jesus who has saved you from your sins, you who have been forgiven, all of life is now an act of worship before the Lord. All of life. And I love how we're described. We ourselves are now a living and holy sacrifice. We're not bringing a physical sacrifice to the altar as in the Old Testament, but we ourselves are that sacrifice. And that was always the point even in the Old Testament, wasn't it? It was never about just externally speaking about that physical sacrifice on the altar. It was about the heart of the worshiper bringing that uh, that offering to the altar. We are that holy and living sacrifice like that grain offering slathered and covered with salt you and i are those who are now consecrated devoted dedicated to god brothers and sisters as a christian you no longer are to live for yourself you no longer belong to yourself you are not your own you are not your own possession it's so helpful for us to memorize and meditate on 1 corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19 and verse 20 where Paul writes this, or do you not know, Christian believer, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. What price was that? Acts twenty twenty eight says that that price was the blood of Christ. The death of Christ is how we've been purchased. We've been redeemed, bought out of the marketplace of sin to now be Christ's possession. The blood of Christ was the price with which God bought us from the marketplace of sin. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, because you, believer, belong to God, therefore glorify God in your body. How helpful that is, isn't it? In the context of where Jesus has been emphasizing the kingdom principle of holiness... How helpful it is to remember that God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. That we belong to him. That no longer is sin our master, but Christ is our master. And we are to glorify him by living as a sacrifice of worship to our Lord. How wonderful that is. And isn't it true that wherever there is a sacrifice, brothers and sisters, there is a smoke of fire? There is a smoke of fire? If you've been around long enough as a Christian, you understand this. That one of the most powerful ways that God is continually purging you and I, purifying sin from our lives, is by the very fiery trials, the tests, the sufferings, the adversity that we face, even persecution in this life. This is how God is purging sin from our lives. I believe that's what the Lord is doing right now in the midst of this pandemic, by the way. The refiner's fire is very much at work. I was reading the other day some articles basically to pastors and leaders about the growing rise in this isolation in the midst of this quarantine of believers, both men and women, going to to pornography in secret because you're isolated. And so the temptation is there to to fulfill the desires, the lust of the heart, and go to those places right now in private. I was reading also about the the rise of, of the need of marital counseling right now. Because obviously couples are in the home so much around one another and like a flashlight things are exposed now and brought to the surface issues that I might have been there all along but now they're surfacing. And so there's so much more need for for counseling taking place right now. We are experiencing the refiner's fire right now and that's not an act of judgment that is an act of God's grace and mercy if we respond to that refiner's fire in the right way Right. We face trials and tests in our marriages, brothers and sisters. Hear me. Why? To purge the self-centeredness and selfishness that marriage, more than any other relationship on this earth, exposes in you and I. As one mentor told me, Kempis, marriage is one of the greatest sanctifiers in this life. And boy, have I experienced that. And I'm sure you would say a hearty amen to that. Marriage more than any other relationship forces you and I to daily, self-sacrificially die to ourselves. Every single day, you make choices to either serve yourself, be about meeting your needs first, or setting aside your needs for the good of your spouse or your family or others. Am I going to set aside my needs today to serve my spouse and my kids? Or am I going to be selfish and self-centered and not redeem the time because the days are evil? Am I, getting to, am I going to dig in my heels to win an argument, whatever that, the issue might be? Am I going to dig in my heels to argue and try to win, combat my spouse until I win? Or am I going to die to myself by asking and extending forgiveness to them? By using language that is helpful, not hurtful constructive not destructive that edifies that that builds up rather than tears down oh well, we experience the refiner's fire every day don't we in those those areas or so we have to sacrifice lay down our lives for the lord through our relationships we face trials and tests in our parenting why to purge us as well by exposing our sinful anger our impatience our love for control, our love for ourselves. Hear me, our unreasonable and unmeasured expectations. Boy, I could be at fault for that. And I'm sure you could say the same thing. We have these expectations and sometimes we are not even willing to fulfill those ourselves, but we put them on somebody else. This is a great time for the Lord to expose that and we ought to thank God for that and respond in humility by wanting to be holy and Christ-like in those areas, we're experiencing the refiner's fire, and that we are facing trials and tests, maybe of a financial nature for some of you. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're on furlough. Maybe you—it's it's slim pickings right now financially. Can I encourage you, brother or sister, that God is also purging you and conforming you into the image of Christ by reminding you of who? Your and my ultimate dependence is. That he was the, he is the one who provides all along. That we need to come to him. That he is our provider. That we can entrust ourselves to him. What a wonderful opportunity to respond to him in worship. And with a desire to see him conform us into the image of Christ. You see, every day in these and many other circumstances, we're being refined. God is teaching us to die to ourselves. To be a self-sacrifice you know this if you were sacrificed on an altar you died you died but for the christian the difference is that we've not only died to self but we've been awakened to a new kind of life we are in the words of romans 12 1, a living sacrifice we are a living sacrifice Romans 6, 11 says, Even so, believer, even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are those who have been given new spiritual life to live for Christ. Paul understood this sacrificial language regarding his own life. In Galatians 2, 20, he writes, I have been crucified with Christ. I've died, in other words. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, I've died. I've died, but Christ lives through me. Therefore, I live. He understood that he was a living sacrifice. That if Christ had given his life for him, that he was no longer his own. He belonged to the Lord. Well, our Lord's disciples were to experience such sacrifice as fully devoted servants of Christ... But here our Lord is preparing them for this. He's preparing them to live by kingdom principles like humility and servanthood, love, holiness, and now as a devoted sacrifice. This is how kingdom citizens live, according to the principles of the King of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I ask you this morning, because I've asked myself the same thing, especially of late, many times. Is this the way you view your Christian life right now? That you are a Holy and living sacrifice? That you no longer live for yourself, but your life belongs to God? Because you see, to become a Christian is not simply to come into some spiritual blessings, to some spiritual gifts independent of Christ, the lover of your soul. To become a Christian means that you come into a living, vibrant relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and now you've died to self. So that you live for Christ. He is your master. You are no longer your master. You are a holy and living sacrifice. And it's easy to to give a hearty yes to that, right? That I do see myself that way when things are easy. But when adversity strikes of a physical, spiritual, financial nature, it's much harder to say this that I want to live laying down my life for the Lord and for other people. We need grace, beloved. We need grace to live, not self-entitled like the society around us, not heralding our rights every single day, but living by the kingdom principle of sacrifice. Sacrifice. Now, please notice that having just mentioned salt in verse 49, Jesus continues with the salt metaphor here to make another point to his disciples in verse 50, which brings us to our fourth principle, if you're taking notes, that as kingdom principles... We must live by the kingdom principle of witness, of witness in verse 50. And today in the face of challenging times, can I remind you and I as believers, as Christians, can I impress upon each of us maybe something that we have forgotten in the midst of this pandemic? That you and I, brothers and sisters, are still here to fulfill the Great Commission. We're here to fulfill the Great Commission. That has not ended because we're going through difficult times. In fact, God wants us to live well in the midst of these fiery times for His glory so that the unbelieving world can see the way that we respond, not atheistically as if we don't believe in God, as if we don't have a Heavenly Father who cares for us and provides for us that we could trust, but that we live for His glory, that we respond trusting Him in the midst of all of this. Well, Jesus had chosen his disciples to to train them for this particular mission. This was their mission, to be witnesses on earth. He's going to reiterate that later on in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, right before his ascension, that they are to be his his witnesses. And so he's already told them to walk in humility, to serve others, to love others, to walk in holiness personally and toward one another. Why? Ultimately so that they might be a witness to the non-believing world around them. And I think this is what he's getting at here in verse 50, this issue of of witness. He takes the metaphor of salt, if you notice, in verse 49, and now applies it to their influence in the world. Look at verse 50. The Lord says, salt is good. In other words, salt is, is useful. Salt is beneficial. Salt preserves food, right? In hot, arid climate salt keeps food from spoiling from deteriorating and of course we know that salt is also good or useful for flavoring for taste salt is good because of that but verse 50 if the salt becomes unsalty with what will you make it salty again in other words assuming this could happen that salt could lose its saltiness Though many tell us from chemistry that it cannot happen because sodium chloride is stable and doesn't lose its stability. Thus, it cannot lose its saltiness. But Jesus is saying, essentially, assuming that it could lose its saltiness, its preserving influence, of what use would salt be? Of what use would it be? What's the Lord talking about here? What's he getting at with this? I don't think it's anything new if you go with me to Matthew chapter 5. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5 to the Sermon on the Mount. There Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, in other words, if it loses its flavor, its influence, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good or useful for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. There in Matthew 5.13, the Lord's talking about about influence, specifically in the area of evangelistic witness in a wicked and perverse lost world. In fact, to make the point, He adds, if you notice in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. And here's his point. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The Lord is making the point that as his followers, as believers, we are light in a shining world when we live righteously. We are like salt that is a flavoring, preserving influence in a wicked and perverse world. Beloved, can I ask you today, do you view yourself that way? That you have a purpose to glorify your Heavenly Father right now, if you are a believer, by living righteously for His glory. Making Christ famous in this world. Is that how you view your life? Yes, even with all your flaws and weaknesses, and susceptibilities to sin, and all of that. God is doing a mighty work in each of us through his Spirit, so that we might impact a lost world for the sake of Christ, even during this pandemic, if I can remind us. We are salt. We are light. And I think this is his point back in Mark nine fifty that he's making. But the question that arose for me is, why is he specifically saying this to his disciples in verse 50? Why does he say this to them? Well, remember that they've been arguing about what? That who was the greatest? They've been divided. They've been in conflict about having the place of prominence in his kingdom. They've been proud. And Jesus has been exposing their pride. Their pride that is shown in their competitiveness, in their elitist attitude, even against a brother in the previous context who was preaching the same gospel on the same gospel team. They were being divisive. All of this, I think, is on the background of what Jesus is saying to them here. And the Lord Jesus is saying, in essence, hey guys, I'm the king, and as my subjects, you need to live by my royal principles and thus bring glory to me. And here's the exhortation to them. Look at the middle of verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Every single word in the text is important. I want you to take a note of that little word and there. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That word and connects those two statements together. They are closely related, interconnected. And here's the point. If they are to have an impact in this world, if they are to be a preserving influence in this world, they need to quit it with the proud rivalries and the proud elitism and the division amongst one another. The competitiveness that they've been showing. They need to be humble individuals, kingdom citizens who preserve peace with one another. Our Lord is saying, you guys, you want to have a powerful impact, a powerful witness in this world? Love one another by being at peace with one another. Oh, how pertinent for us is this right now, isn't it? This issue of peace and unity is huge. And can I remind us that it was huge for our Lord Jesus. It was so important that on the night of his betrayal in the upper room, the Lord prays for his disciples for various things. But one of the key themes is love and unity as we just prayed over last Wednesday night together. The Lord prayed to his father in John seventeen eleven, that they may be one, that his disciples might be one, even as we, the father and the son are one. And then again in John 17 and verse 21, he prays for them, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is saying, Father, help them to be one so that they reflect our nature, our oneness as as your people, and for evangelistic Purposes for witness sake, that they might love and walk in unity with one another, be at peace with one another. And then again in John 17, 22, Jesus is still praying, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. In John 17, verse 23, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Why? so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Wow. Impressive prayer, isn't it? Jesus' prayer for unity is amazing. He's saying our unity reflects the profound oneness of the Godhead, God's very nature, and our unity becomes a powerful witness in this world. So he says in verse 50, Be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. And in this way, you're going to be salt in a tasteless world. Can I remind us this morning that this is the case for us as well, brothers and sisters. We are salt. We are light in this world. It's become such a powerful, powerful thing for us. We as believers are a preserving influence in this world as long as the Lord would have us here. And by God's grace alone, may he help us to do that. We are to let our light so shine before men that they might see our good works and not glorify us, but glorify our Father who is in heaven. And one of the key ways that we do that is by loving and being at peace with one another. First Peter two twelve. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, Peter writes to believers. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, amongst the non-Christian world, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, bring glory to God in the day of visitation. This is to be us. And as you hear this, you might be thinking to yourself, perhaps this is kind of a moot point right now. Like, I mean, we're in isolation, we're in quarantine. This is not really an issue right now, is it? Well, if you're informed, you're greatly, you're greatly mistaken. You're greatly mistaken. You need to get informed. You know, I see so many people in our country right now divided over so many things. And can I be honest with you? Frankly, I expect it to be that way amongst people who don't know the Lord. People who don't live by kingdom principles, the kingdom principles of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's eye-opening It's to see the complaining. It's to see the division amongst Christians, amongst the people of God. Amongst those who've been rescued from hell and condemnation by the blood of Christ. This is what is sad to see and humbling to see right now. So I think we need to be addressing this as believers. According to these passages about being light and salt in the world. How should we be conducting ourselves in a way that that brings honor to our Savior rather than shame to His name? I love what Kosti Hinn said this week. He said, politics don't determine salvation. Vaccines, favorable or not, don't determine salvation. Your rights... Don't determine salvation says put it in perspective those things and many other things don't determine Salvation are they absolutely important things? Yes. Amen preach it We should be informed and engaged in all of those issues But isn't it amazing brothers and sisters? How many many flags we raise as identity markers above our identity in jesus christ through those things? gotta be careful gotta be careful with our witness And I encourage us this morning, me included, we need to be careful not to to match the the anger and the impatience and the anxiety of our neighbors, of our co-workers, of our non-believing friends, non-believing family members, of people in our city, in our state, in our country, in our workplace, and lose our Christian witness by living just like them and responding to the pandemic just like them. We never bring shame to the name of Christ through that. We are citizens, brethren, of another kingdom. And we are to live by kingdom principles. So be careful with duking it out over differences in politics. Almost as if if God is either a Republican or he's a Democrat. We like to claim him on one side or the other, right? And then Christians blast one another directly or indirectly on social media over issues of politics. In ways that are not gracious. In ways that are not gentle. In ways that are not loving. And thus, ultimately, we bring shame to the name of Christ our Savior. Let's be careful. To be clear, as Christians, we need to be informed, engaged, absolutely. But we need to be different, brothers and sisters, beloved, than the world in how we address those things and even speak into those things within godly parameters. That's what I'm saying. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Adopting the thinking patterns of the world, the moral values of the world, the world's way of doing things and addressing things. We are to be Christ-like bringing glory to God, not bringing attention to ourselves or to our pet peeve issues. We are salt and light in the world. Colossians 4, 6 is a, a verse that I've been meditating on, and it's been such a struggle just to make sure that I'm living under this. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace. Literally gracious. As though seasoned with salt. So that you will know how you should respond to each person. I love that. I love that. We need to always have the salt shaker in our hands at all times, right? Right? Sprinkling our our words with salt in our home, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, on social media. Sprinkling everything with salt, with grace, graciousness, speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word, that is putrid or filthy word, proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good, that is beneficial, helpful, profitable, Only such a word as is good for edification. Edification means building up. Words that build up, not tear down. Words that are constructive, not destructive. Then he says, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. How is your attitude as shown in your speech right now toward others? In your home, in your marriage, toward your kids? Kids, young and older. Grandkids even. How is your speech right now towards one another and towards your parents? What about in the workplace for some of you who are still working or still interacting even virtually? How is your speech? How are you, what's your testimony like for the glory of Christ with those co-workers of yours? And for the rest of our relationships, either live or on social media, are you watching your witness for Christ Are you careful? Are you living with wisdom? Because you see, the Lord calls His disciples and us to live by the kingdom principle of a godly evangelistic witness, brothers or sisters. I love what Sinclair Ferguson comments here regarding verse 50. He writes, Does verse 50 seem like an anticlimax after his great summons to moral purity? Not at all. It's precisely in the ability of Christians to love one another truly and humbly from the heart that the community of believers is distinguished from the backbiting or backscratching communities of the world. Being at peace with one another is a reflection of the God given peace we have first received from Jesus Christ. Jesus never downplayed the powerful witness of true Christian fellowship, and neither should we. So true. So true what he writes there. And so the challenge for us in this rich text, brethren, Mark 9, 38 through 50, is the following by God's grace. Am I behaving like a kingdom citizen even in the face of a pandemic like this? Am I behaving like the kingdom citizen that I am? This world is not my own. I'm a pilgrim. I'm passing through here. We await a future glorious kingdom when Jesus returns. But am I living by his kingdom principles as a kingdom citizen right now? I want us to contemplate this in a few questions. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes where you're at. Okay. Close your eyes for a few minutes. And there in the quietness of your heart, I want you to consider these things. Ask yourself as I've been asking myself these questions. Even in contemplation of this text. First, am I cultivating humility in my life? Am I cultivating humility in my life? Am I spending regular, consistent time in God's Word, seeking to know God, behold Him, so that I see myself in the light of who He is? Because this is where humility comes from. Lowliness of mind comes by daily communing with God in His Word and prayer. Beholding Him. And that we're brought very low, aren't we? We see ourselves rightly in the light of His holiness. Secondly, am I loving those around me? Am I proactively loving those around me by selflessly giving of myself for the needs of others, by preserving unity actively, asking for forgiveness and extending forgiveness and believing the best of others? Am I loving those around me? Third, am I walking in holiness? Am I walking in holiness, personal and communal? Personally, am I taking my sin seriously in light of the holiness of God? And by God's grace and God's grace alone in His Spirit and His Word, am I addressing that sin in my life? Or am I giving into it? And communally, are you pursuing holiness in a communal fashion where you are spurring others to love and good deeds, being careful not to bring others down and cause others to sin? Fourth, Am I mindful of the fact that I'm living? I'm a living sacrifice? That my life is to be laid down for my king now, just as he did it for me? Am I embracing as a living sacrifice these present trials? That's one way that we might manifest this right now. Are we putting our theology, brothers and sisters, seeking to apply what we know about God and how he works into practice during these times? And then finally... Am I focused on, even now, influencing the world for Christ? Am I focused on influencing the world for Christ, being a witness right now? How is your witness right now for Christ? Are you characterized by a spirit of negativity, combativeness, argumentative, grumbling and complaining? Christians ought to be people who are full of gratitude by the grace of God, who have a Christ-honoring perspective in our outlook on life. Father, we confess that each day we fall so short that we're weak and sinful. We thank you that you have sent your son Jesus into the world to die for sinners like us. Father, we thank you that there's forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And that's what we want to seek even now, Lord, personally and communally. And I pray for the church at large as well in our country and all over the world. That, oh, Father, we might be people who... Yes, things are difficult. Yes, things are hard. But by your grace, you are a sovereign God who's allowed this, who's brought it about, and we can trust you. And nothing that happens in our lives, we can bank on this by what your word says. Nothing happens apart from your glory and our good. So Father, give us a Christ-exalting perspective that we might be a faithful witness to a lost and wicked world. We pray these things by your grace in Jesus name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.